The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the fifth chapter and the forty-fourth verse. The forty-fourth verse in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Those who attend here regularly will know that this evening we are looking at this great and momentous statement for the third time. And I come back to it not merely because we have not exhausted its wealth of meaning but also because, as I've been trying to indicate, it is one of those pivotal, vital verses in connection with the Christian faith. There is no more important verse than this, because here our Lord, as you see, analyzes the most important question which can ever confront us, namely, belief in him. Now, we've already considered what it is that makes this kind of belief in him impossible. He says there's only one thing that makes belief in him impossible, and that is that we have that kind of mentality that simply lives to give and to receive honor one to another. That mentality, he says, makes belief in him a sure and an utter impossibility. We have also considered what it is that leads to belief in him. He makes it quite plain, it is to seek that honor that comes alone from God. And in both cases, we've been able to find and deduce abundant reasons for the statement which our Lord makes. We have seen why the sort of men who simply lives to receive worldly honor, honors from men, cannot possibly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw last Sunday equally clearly that if a man truly seeks that honor which God alone can give, he will be driven of necessity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, having done that, we are still left with this great and vital question. What is it? that accounts for people like these Jews to whom our Lord was speaking, you remember, on this occasion? What accounts for all other people who are in the same group, in the same category? Here was the position, you remember. Our Lord was addressing a body of Jews who didn't believe in him, regarded him as but a man, and indeed regarded him as a blasphemer, regarded him as one who in his willfulness was breaking God's law by healing on a Sunday. And our Lord reasons with them, makes positive statements to them, claims explicitly that he is one with God, sharing the same mind, the same will, the same purpose, that God has given to him power to give life and power to execute judgment. And then he says to them, well, he says, I know you won't accept all this because you've got a saying 
to the effect that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established. Very well, he says, I've got my witnesses, and he produced them. John the Baptist, his testimony, the miracles, God himself, all the Old Testament, here's the evidence. But still they remained obdurate. Still they remained impervious to all his arguments and all his appeals. And yet he goes on, he doesn't give them up. Here we see his love shining through gloriously. He says, I receive no testimony from men, but these things I say that you might be saved. And yet there they are still standing back. They don't believe in him. They don't believe his word. They don't accept his claims. They won't submit themselves to him and be blessed by him. He turns to them and says, you will not come unto me that you might have life. What's the matter with them? Well, here I say he is dealing with that. And he is giving these reasons on the one hand and on the other. And I say the question that arises for us now at this point, having analyzed it hitherto, is just this. What is it then in men that uh, makes him seek honor from another man rather than seek that honor that is from God only? That's the question. To do that makes belief impossible. To do that leads to belief. Well, what is it then that accounted for the fact that these Jews did not seek the honor that God alone could give, but did seek the honor from one another? What is this? What is it that still accounts for that in men and women? Why is it that men and women do not believe in the Son of God? and receive that life which he has come to give. What causes this? Well, the answer is again abundantly plain and clear. It's an answer which is given everywhere in the Bible. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's what has happened to men as the result of the fall. This Seeking honor one from another and not seeking honor from God is the result of sin and its devastating effect upon men and upon his nature. Now this, as I need scarcely remind you, is one of the central and the basic themes of the whole Bible from beginning to end. And of course it must be. No man is prepared to listen to the voice of a savior unless he realizes that he's in trouble and that he's in need. And the world doesn't listen to Christ tonight because it doesn't see any need of him. It's not aware of its trouble and of its need. So the Bible puts this in the forefront. There are only two great themes in the Bible. One is sin, the other is salvation. And they must be taken together. It's inevitable. And therefore, when you read your Bible, you'll find that the Old Testament is full of this question, this doctrine of sin. It's an extended account of what sin has done to mankind. The law reveals sin. The prophets reveal sin. You find it in the Psalms. It's everywhere. Sin. But it's when you come to the New Testament that you rarely see it clearly. And that, of course, for this good reason. But here we are confronted at once in the pages of the four Gospels with the greatest tragedy in the whole story of the human race. 
God's Son came into the world. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. Here you see the problem. That when God sends his only begotten Son into the world, and the Son comes and stands before the world and offers salvation, the world rejected him and cried out, saying, Away with him! Crucify him! Chose a robber called Barabbas, rather than the Son of God, the Savior. Yeah, you see it in all its utter stark nakedness. What is the matter with the world? What is this thing, I say, in human nature and in the human race that drives it to such an action and that accounts for such an action? And as I say, the answer is everywhere, just this, it is sin. And what I want to do with you, therefore, this evening is to analyze that. Indeed, to put before you our Lord's own analysis of that. As he stood there confronted by those unbelieving Jews, he in effect is saying this to them, I'll tell you what's the matter with you. You don't believe in me, you won't come unto me that you might have life. Why? Well, because you're in the grip of sin. You are suffering from the effects of this foul canker that entered into life and into the life of man and has ruined him. So we can treat this verse as our Lord's exposition of what sin has done to man. And I can divide up the matter like this very simply. Here is the first thing. Sin, in the last analysis, makes man a fool. Oh, you'll find that stated very often in the Bible. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Sin makes men a fool. An utter fool. Foolish. Now, the real trouble, it seems to me, with all modern views of men and his predicament, the real trouble with all these views, every view in fact except that which is found in the Bible, the, the final criticism to offer of them is that they are so utterly superficial. It isn't merely that they're wrong. I say they're unutterably superficial. What they don't realize is the essential nature of man's trouble. And especially the depth of his trouble. Is there anything more pathetic and more tragic in the world at this moment than just that? To see the kind of remedies that men and women who are not Christians are offering to the world in its present predicament. They've been doing it for centuries, but they still go on repeating exactly the same thing. Now I say the final thing to say about all these things is that they are so unutterably superficial. You see, the problem that we've got to solve is this. I put it again. What is it in man that makes him turn his back upon his Savior? What is it that makes a man reject the Son of God and his wondrous offer of salvation? Now that's the thing we've got to explain. And I say that here is the only adequate explanation that sin 
makes men a fool. In other words, let me put it like this. There are two common misconceptions, it seems to me, in the modern view of men and of men's need and trouble. The first is uh, that which assumes that man essentially is right, but there are particular things that are wrong with him. Now, you're familiar with that view of men, are you not? The idea is that man himself, at the center and in the very core of his being, is all right. It's admitted that there are certain blemishes and defects here and there, but man himself, we are told, is all right. He's essentially right, though he may have certain particular things about him which are wrong. You see, the Bible says the very exact opposite of that. What the Bible says about men is that his trouble is that he himself is essentially wrong. It grants that he may do many things that are right, that he is capable of nobility and many right actions. Yes, but the trouble is that man himself is wrong. It's the center that's wrong. Not certain things on the circumference, but the very heart and center of men has been vitiated and ruined by the fallen sin. The second misconception is this one. That uh, sin is something which merely affects men's actions and leaves his mind and his brain and his understanding intact. Now, again, I think that you are familiar with many who say something like that at the present time. They say man, of course, himself is all right. His ideas are all right. He fails in practice. Man's trouble, they say, is in the realm of execution. They say the real problem of the world is that men will keep on lapsing in this respect and that respect. It's only a question of conduct in particular, uh, certain particular actions. He, he himself is thinking, his mind, his outlook is essentially right. Now again, the Bible gives a blank denial to that. And says that the essential trouble with men and the real tragedy of men is in his mind. It's his outlook that's wrong. It isn't merely man's actions. It's that his total view of himself and of life is altogether erroneous. In other words, as I say, the biblical contention is that uh, a sin has made men a fool. And uh, this uh, folly of his uh, comes out in certain respects, such as these. That man refuses to face facts. But man not only refuses to face facts. What do I mean by that? Well, certain facts like this. That life is short and life is fleeting. That this is not the only life. Oh, but you say that's being morbid. No, no, we're not hurling names at one another, are we? I say that the fact of death is a fact. And if you don't start your philosophy by catering for rule. But man not only doesn't face these facts, he deliberately won't face them. And he deliberately refuses to face them, and he's annoyed with anybody who tries to press him to face them. He resents it. He said, but you shouldn't do that. And yet they're facts. Now, I say a man who becomes annoyed when he is asked to face facts. 
He is just a fool. What would you say of the men who, having been told by his doctor that if he goes on drinking and smoking and overeating as he has been doing, he'll kill himself? Who says, I take no notice of things like that and carries on? There's only one thing to say about him. The man's a fool. Of course he is. Any man who refuses to face facts is a fool. He's also a fool in this respect. That he doesn't think and he doesn't reason clearly. He doesn't really apply his mind to the fundamental problem. Oh, he's very interested in the atomic bomb. Something always outside his own life, far away from him. But he never sits down and looks at himself in a mirror and talks to himself about himself. He doesn't do that. He refuses to think clearly. He'll think very clearly, mathematically, scientifically, and in many other respects. But when it comes to the whole problem of himself and his life, he doesn't think clearly any longer. He doesn't reason carefully. He trusts to intuitions. He believes in vague generalizations. Well, now again, surely that is to be guilty of folly. You may apply much thought and reason to your business or your profession. I ask you, have you applied the same reason and thought and logic to yourself, your personal life and living, your married life, your family life, your relationships with others, and yourself in the total content of this modern world? And then I put it finally at this point in this way. That man, as our Lord here clearly indicates, is governed by his desires, and that's why he doesn't use his mind and his brain. Ah, oh, says man, I want to enjoy myself. I want to have a good time. I rather like this honor that other people pay me, so he goes in for that. How can you believe that receive honor one of another? That's what he lives for. It's pleasant. It's enjoyable. It's marvelous, he says. It's wonderful. So he goes in for it. Why? Well, because he likes it. He's governed by his desire. His test is what gives him pleasure. He's a hedonist. This is the thing that comes first. Everything is judged in terms of, uh, will I be happy? Will I enjoy this? Instead of asking, is it right? Is it true? Has it got a fundamental righteousness in it? Well, in those ways, our Lord here indicates, it seems to me, that sin has made of men a fool. That's the proposition. You receive honor, he says, one of another, and receive not the honor that comes from God only. And there's only one thing to say about a man of whom that is true. He's a fool. Now I've given it to you in a kind of intellectual form. Let me give it in the practical form. Can this charge which our Lord makes against a man who doesn't believe in him, can it be substantiated? Is it a harsh judgment, or is it true? Very well, let me deal with that in a second proposition by showing the way in which this folly that results from sin reveals and manifests itself. How does it do so? Well, here are the ways in which it does so. This folly leads a man to put man before God 
Now, you see, he goes wrong at the very beginning, doesn't he? Man, as our Lord has proved, and as we've seen together, is a man who's always out for honor. He always wants to be honored by somebody, man or God. Well, now, the man who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ is the man who seeks honor from men and doesn't seek it from God. So there, I say, he goes astray. Who does he seek honor from? And there, he reveals himself to be a fool. He seeks it from men and does not seek it from God. He puts man before God. Now, isn't this unutterable folly? The way you test the value of an honor is to discover, is it not, the source of the honor. Let me give you but a passing obvious illustration. You may see on a, on a piece of paper a man's name with a number of degrees following. Oh, you say, this is very wonderful. Look at these degrees that this man has got. This must be a great man. But then a friend comes along and says very rightly, uh, Yes, that's all right. It looks very imposing and very impressive. But uh, where did he obtain these degrees? Uh, from which uh, university has he received them? There are degrees and degrees. A man may have had his high degree from Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Princeton or Yale. Yes, let me put it simply and plainly. But a man may have the same degrees after his name, but he's obtained them from the University of Timbuktu. There are bogus universities. There are universities where you can purchase and buy your degrees. The way to test the value of the honor is the dis discovery of the source from which the honor has come. And here you see the folly of a man. See the man strutting with these great degrees after his name and clad. You say, he, how wonderful, how proud he is. A poor man, of course he is. It's because of his ignorance. It doesn't count in academic circles. They know the value of the degrees. Ah, but that's what man does in sin. That's what every man does who isn't a Christian tonight. He's seeking the bogus degrees given by man's university. And he's never sought the honors that the heavenly university has got to give. Seeking honor one of another and seeking not the honor that comes from God only. He puts man before God. And is there any folly, I say, that is comparable to this? What is he guilty of? Well, let me note you some of the things. He is guilty of a gross overestimate of men. You receive honor, one of another, says our Lord. And I showed you a fortnight ago that the whole world lives on this. We spend our time paying compliments to one another, writing things about one another, writing for one another. The whole of society is governed by just this being important in the eyes of one another. What's it mean? It means we're overestimating man and his opinion. These honors that men and women are so keen on and which they'll spend money and time and energy in order to, uh, to obtain them, where do they come from? From men, his finite character. Men... Why don't they stop to consider men's faulty judgment? 
Hasn't he always been wrong about these vital metals? Men who has claimed so much by last century, the politicians and the poets and the philosophers were all prophesying that the 20th century was going to be a century of golden era, a century of bliss. They were all wrong, and yet we attach such value to their opinions and to their honors. Their judgments are so fallible and so faulty. Why do you seek honor from such a source and think how changeable their judgments are and their evaluations? They're always contradicting themselves and changing their opinions. Is this the source from which you seek honor? I say it's utter folly. Oh, let me put it finally like this. Is man's record in this world such that we should value his high opinion and his commendation? Read your history books, your secular history books. Read the story of man's inhumanity to man. Man with all his learning and his ingenuity, with his politics and his philosophy, look at the mess he's made of his world. It's man who's made the mess, not God. And yet we seek honor from such a source. We overestimate man and what he can give and the honor that he can pay us. And the man who does it is a fool. Listen to Isaiah. Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? This finite character, this pygmy, that would stride the world as a colossus. Look at him, examine him. And before you fall at his feet and seek the honor that he can give you, come to a true assessment of him. See him for what he is. I say that any man who seeks honor that comes from men is a fool. He's overestimating men. Ah, but look at the other side. Consider his appalling ignorance of God. He puts men before God. Why? Well, he overestimates men and he doesn't know the truth about God. Oh, that's the trouble with the world. We don't know God. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? There's a better translation. And seek not the honor that comes from the only God. There is only one God. And God is one. Millions, myriads of men and women, millions of angels, but one God. You who are out for honors, that seek the exclusive, that want to get into the highest circles where there are but a few, why don't you go to the topmost circle where God alone is? The only God. Cease from men whose breath is in his nostrils and look to the Creator, the everlasting God, 
the God of the ends of the earth, the God who made everything out of nothing, that sits on the circle of the universe, that suspended the north in the empty void. Consider him. Do you remember Daniel's devastating denunciation? Oh, that foolish king Belshazzar. Oh, he says, hast honored the gods of wood and of stone and of stubble, and hast not glorified the God in whose hand thy breath all thy ways, the everlasting, the almighty God, the Lord of the universe, the judge of the whole earth, Lord of all beings throned above. Thy glory flames from sun and star, center and soul of every sphere. And man doesn't seek the honor that he gives. He seeks the honors that man can give. And doesn't seek the honor that the Lord of the universe, the everlasting God, can give to man. There's no need for me to press my point, is there? Is there anyone who dares to say at this moment that a man who's guilty of that is anything but a fool? But wait a minute. He not only shows his folly in that way by setting men before God. Consider the type of honor that he chooses and the type of honor that he rejects. It isn't merely the source of honor in and of itself. Look at it. Let me hurry through it. Consider the type of honor that a man can give us, that men do give us. What, is, what are the characteristics of these honors? Well, they're essentially a sham. They're essentially artificial. You see, our Lord puts it very perfectly, doesn't it? He says, you seek honor one of another. And we do. We give and we take. We fool ourselves. It's all a sham and a pretense. We set certain people up in great positions, and then having done that to them, we then fall down before them and receive honors from them. We're simply playing with ourselves. We're behaving like children. Now, you know, we do this actually with kings and queens and presidents and people like that. They're nothing in and of themselves. We set them up and then we say, ah, we want the honors that they can give. But it's we who've given them the honor. Think of countries that once were monarchies and where everybody bowed down before the king and the queen. But they've now become republics. They're the same people. These people who are kings and queens are still alive. They're the same people. But nobody bows the knee and does obeisance. Why? Well, man has taken from them the honor he gave them. And he's no longer interested in the honor they can give back to him. It's all a sham. It's artificial. It's all human invention and creation. It has no real being, no real meaning. But secondly, uh, look how trivial it is. Even at its best and its highest, I needn't keep you 
I think Shakespeare has used just one word that says it all and absolutely perfect. Listen to him. Seeking, he says, the bubble reputation, even in the canon's mouth. Yes, you see, the point made by Shakespeare is that wherever a man seeks it, not only at the cannon's mouth, but anywhere else, reputation is always a bubble, the iridescent bubble. It has color and form and shape, but no substance and content. The bubble. Reputation. This reputation, this honor that men seek, it makes no difference to us essentially. It doesn't add to us. It's something we add on to our names. We put on it as a, put it on as a cloak. I'm thinking of money. I'm thinking of status. I'm thinking of degrees. I'm thinking of knowledge. I'm thinking of a personal appearance and smartness. I'm thinking of success in sport, some wonderful achievement in this or that. It's all artificial. It is all but a bubble. It doesn't really add to man's true essential greatness and dignity and character. And then think of the element of decay that is always in it. Seek not such things as our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, because moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves enter in and steal. And isn't that true of human reputation? Isn't that true of the honors that men can give to us? You who may pride yourself on your personal appearance and be flattered when people compliment you. You're proud of your face. You're proud of your figure. And people are. They put that first. There are those who reject God and Christ. Because of this, I say, wait a moment. Moth and rust doth corrupt. The passing of the years will soon take that from you. And you will soon be molding and rotting in a grave. Moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves enter in and steal. Look at the man who's complimented and who's proud of the fact that he's broken a record. He's run a mile in a shorter time than anybody else. How proud he is. Yes, but next day somebody beats his record, and where is he? Records are being broken day after day, and yet men pride themselves, and the world pays its compliment. But oh, how transient and evanescent it is. Think of knowledge. Ah, oh, we say, what a great man. Look at what he's discovered. Look at the knowledge the man has got. Do you know, in ten years' time, it'll be absolutely out of date. The textbooks that were revered a century ago, nobody knows them now. You can't get anything for them from the second-hand bookseller. Why, they're out of date. They've gone. They're outmoded. Think of it in terms of politics. There is a man who rises to the top and the whole world falls at his feet. He's acclaimed, he's the great man, and he's proud of the honor that men pay him. Yes, says the wise poet again, Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. There are others who are anxious to wear it. And they're plotting and scheming, and they're in rivalry against him, and they'll bring him down if they can, and they always do bring him down. Oh, there's an element of decay in all these honors. And then think of its capriciousness, its uncertainty. 
Are you living for the good opinions of men, for the honors that men and women can give you? Oh, there's nothing more changeable, more unreliable, more capricious than this. Taste change. Tastes in art, tastes in music, tastes in poetry, tastes in drama, tastes in politics. There's nothing so capricious as human opinion and human praise. I mustn't keep you, my dear friends. Let me put this again in memorable words, which I think says the last word about this kind of thing. The confession of a man who'd lived to please men and to be honored by men. The aged dismissed Cardinal Wolsey. Had I but served God as I have served the king, he would not have given me over in my gray hand. He had sought a capricious honor from a capricious monarch. And in his gray hairs on the verge of the grave, he is dismissed as favorite. He has nothing at all. And that applies to every honor given by man to man. It's unreliable. And yet men seek this kind of honor. But again, look at the other side. Look at the honor that men in sin refuses. What a fool man is. Man wants to be noticed. He wants to be noticed by men. But what he doesn't seek is this. To be noticed by God. And yet that is what is true of every Christian. This is the honor that comes to every Christian. A Christian is a man who has been noticed by God. The God who has created the cosmos and who sustains everything has his eye upon all things. He's got his eye upon that unknown Christian. He not only has his eye upon him now, he had his eye upon him before the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us that as Christians our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Do you want notice? Do you want honor? Do you want to be important? Well, here it is. That God has written your name in his book of life before the foundation of the world. He knows you. Not only that, he has set his affection upon you. He loves you. He's put your name into the plan of redemption. He sent his son from heaven to earth and to the cross on Calvary's hill and to the grave for you. You were interested in honors, had you thought of that? That the son of God should die for you. That's true of every Christian. The son of God, says Paul, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, this is honor to be sought by God. Not at this point that I seek him, but that he sought me. Yes, says Francis Thompson, that's why I am what I am. He chased me down the nights and down the days. God, the hound of heaven, 
chasing Francis Thompson. And God seeks every man who becomes a Christian. And he draws him with the cords of his love. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. God calling us, drawing us, then through the death of his son, reconciling us unto himself. This is the honor that God gives. And then you see as the result of all this, to know God. Our Lord says that that is eternal life. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Uh, what does man live for? Oh, I'll tell you what man lives for. He wants to know the important people. He says, you know, I'm very hopeful that I'll have an introduction next week. I've got the wheels moving. I'm making my arrangements. He wants to be presented. He wants to meet this man. He's very high up. He's most important. Ah, to know so-and-so. It's the height of their ambition. And yet to the lowliest, most insignificant, unknown Christian is offered knowledge of God. To be able to say, my God. And not only to know him as God, but to know him as my Father. To become his child. Let me put it like this again, though you may have the honor of being presented to the Queen in Buckingham Palace, she may even shake you by your hand. You know, when you go out, you're still a commoner. You boast about it, yes, but you're still a commoner. You're not adopted into the royal family. You're merely presented and out you go. But here, not only do you know God, he takes you into his family. He adopts you. The adoption of children. Exactly. Taken into the very household of God. No more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Honor. You were interested in honors. Have you sought this? And to have his Holy Spirit resident within you. And oh, this how valuable it is and how tender to have access always into his presence. No formalities to go through. No wires to pull. In the hour of your agony when your heart is breaking and you don't know what to do nor where to turn. The way is open, the gate is open. When all things seem against me to drive me to despair. I know one gate is open. One ear will hear my prayer. Oh, what a privilege. Having access, having the ability of an audience. Whenever you like, wherever you are and whatever your condition. Having therefore, brethren, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. And then to enjoy fellowship with God and to be able to take your cares, your problems and all your requests to him 
And to know on top of this that he is guarding you and shielding you and protecting you and guiding you. Do you know, said Christ, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Nothing can happen to you apart from God. He knows the falling of a sparrow. How much greater is interest in you? He's numbered the very hairs of your head. That's an interest. The God of heaven taking that interest in you. And not only to know God and to be his child, but because of that to be an heir of God. And a joint heir with Christ. Not only to be blessed by him daily in this world, but to know that you go on beyond this world. To the possession of things which eye hath not seen or ear heard. Which have not entered into the heart of men. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Think of it. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And beyond it all to spend your eternity in the glorious presence of God. My dear friends, does it need demonstration or proof? A man who seeks the bubble reputation and doesn't seek this, there's only one thing to say about him. He's a fool! And for me to close, don't you see how this means that you set time before eternity? Look at the honor of men. Listen to the Bible on it. Listen to Christ on it. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of men is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Change and decay in all around I see. And yet men and women seek it. Time, it's going to end the pleasures of sin for a season. And for a season only. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of men is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord abideth forever. Yes, this man Moses, he wasn't seeking the pleasures of sin for a season. He had his eye on the recompense of the reward. His eye was on glory, on the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. A man who puts the pleasures of time before the glories of eternity is a fool. A man who forgets his everlasting and eternal destiny who ignores death in the grave and the judgment of God beyond death in the grave and who sees that his eternal destiny is involved, a man who doesn't see that, I say, is a fool. Time he puts before eternity. And finally, Is there anything which is quite as mad and as vain and as foolish as this? To strive, to sweat, to agonize, to spend money and time and energy in trying to obtain man's honor and favor. 
and to refuse to receive the honor which comes from God for nothing as a free gift through the hands of Jesus Christ. Is there anything to say about it but that it is folly? To strive and sweat, to vie with others and to compete for man's honor, this passing ephemeral bubble honor. And God in the meantime is offering freely for nothing all the riches of his grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ for nothing at all. Simply that we acknowledge and confess our sin and our need and ask him to receive us as pauper, as helpless, vile creatures. My dear friend, I've put the position before you. Where are you? Which are you seeking? Surely any man who's listened must come to this conclusion and say this. Just as I am of that free love, the height, length, depth, and height to prove, here for a season, then above. O Lamb of God, I come. It's one or the other. You are either seeking the honor that men give, or you are seeking the honor that comes alone from the living God. Through Jesus Christ, his Son, come to him, just as you are, without one plea, but that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. See the folly of putting men before God, such trumpery honors before God's riches, time before eternity, and rejecting the free gift of God's grace. See it and turn to him and he will receive you and give you the gift divine. Amen.